Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, producer of Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show celebrating 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, Clarence. I'm Liz Mitchell, everybody. During this hour, we'll also give you opportunities to support WFHB during its spring fun drive. Thanks in advance for what you will do during this hour. Several of our Bring It On listeners and longtime supporters have given advance gifts to the WFHB Fund Drive. For your generosity, we thank you. And Clarence, I want to make a commitment to write you a check today. That's what I love about live radio, people. It's easy to do. You can smile, dial 812-323-1200, or you can do just as my lovely co-host has done, commit on the spot. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, later also in in tonight's broadcast, you'll hear from Byron Turner, president of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus, who will talk about a candidate's forum that will be held this coming Sunday. Now, more information on that coming a little later. But for now, we have invited back Dr. Charlie Nelms, who is held as a transformational servant leader, a motivational speaker, and a consultant with expertise in higher education. He is the former chancellor of universities in North Carolina, Indiana, and Michigan. He has more than 40 years of experience in leadership and student access, retention and graduation, institutional effectiveness, and strategic planning. Dr. Nams join us in the studio this evening as a run-up to a book launch from called From Cotton Fields to University Leadership. All Eyes on Charlie, a memoir, a study of how education was his weapon of choice for fighting racism and inequality. On Tuesday, April 30th, from 3.30 to 5 p.m. in the Georgian Room of the Indiana Memorial Union, which is 900 East 7th Street, this is the IU Bicentennial uh, Wellhouse Series event. Dr. Nelms, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm always delighted to be here. (laughs) Thank you. It's always good to see you. As always, our our ratings go through the roof whenever you're on, sir, and uh, we thank you for the boost uh, on the front end of what will happen during the next hour. But I'm really, truly excited to learn more about what you've labored to produce and what I understand, uh, the delivery of of such a work will be brought to your possession tomorrow, perhaps as early as tomorrow. We're talking about a book, and as Liz has said earlier, uh, the name of the book is From Cotton Fields to University Leadership, All Eyes on Charlie. It's a memoir, a story of how education was his weapon of choice for fighting racism and inequality. Now, in the forward part of the book, you have a very personal uh, note here, it says, this book is dedicated to the memory of my mother, Carrie D. Nelms, my father, Eddie Nelms Sr., my sister, Carrie C. Nelms, my brothers, Harvey and Willie Nelms, my mother-in-law, Julia Sherrod, my best friends, Ernest Smith, 
Kenneth Chrisman, Jimmy Ross, and Tondiji Genghis, and all members of the village who supported me and surrounded me with love and encouragement. And of course, he says to his family, my wife, Janetta, my son, Rashad, my siblings and their spouses, my nieces and nephews and members of my extended family, to Clarence and Liz, all of whom have shown me unconditional love. Let's go back to tell us about Carrie and Eddie. Wow, Carrie and Eddie. How much time do we have? We, we have uh, <laughs> as much time as you, you need to take, as long as it's not more than uh, 39 minutes. Okay, I'll make it brief. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, thank you all so much for inviting me. It's always good to be here. And uh, I want to give a shout out and a, an expression of, expression of appreciation uh, to the uh, Indiana University Press, uh, as well as the Office of the President of Indiana University and the Bicentennial Office uh, for the book launch that they are hosting mm-hmm. on uh, April 30th. And so I'm just honored that they would do that. Uh, but um, Carrie and Eddie Nelms were phenomenal people, mm-hmm. uh, neither of whom graduated elementary school, but they were the smartest people I ever met in my life. And, uh, you know, I say to people, we had enough children in my family to have a football team. There were 11 of us, okay? And my parents had enough love and encouragement and hugs to go around to all of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so um, they didn't have much education, but they were very wise people, and they Mm -hmm. believed in the power of education, voting, and owning land. We have a 40-acre farm in eastern Arkansas now. And uh, the mule is dead, but the farm is still there. And as long as I am alive and I've arranged it legally where the farm can never be sold. That's awesome. In honor of our parents. And uh, so phenomenal parents uh, who didn't pressure you to do anything, but they just said to you, do your best. Yeah. Do your best. And uh, and that's what we tried to say to our son, do your best. I, I admire and I can't wait. To, to read the book and what I've been reading today, uh, I was almost late coming here because I once I get started reading something that I that right off the gate, it got me mm-hmm. to want to keep turning pages or I'm looking at it on my cell phone. Sure. So I like reading a book. Mm-hmm. I want to feel a book in my hands and I want to turn the pages. I cannot wait to read this book. Um, I've heard similar stories, similar to how you were raised. One of the questions that jumped right at me off the bat, this Mr. Ed, Mm -hmm. the white plantation owner, Mm -hmm. seems like he was pissed off, thoroughly upset, mad, angry, that your dad, how dare he let one of his kids go to college rather than work in the fields. Did I interpret that correctly? Oh, you you interpreted it correctly, (laughs) big time, you know. And we had Mr. Ed's all over the South, not just in Arkansas and in Crittenden County, but they were throughout the southern part of the United States. And uh, uh, so, you know, education was designed going back to that era to make sure that plantation owners had a had a supply of laborers, okay? And the only thing you needed to do was be able to read a little bit, write a little bit, know a little arithmetic, and that was it. And the system was not designed to educate us for post-secondary education at all. But my daddy had a saying. He said, when your hand is in the lion's mouth, you can't make any sudden moves. And what Papa would do is he would just say, yes, sir, yes, sir. And my daddy would go around on about his business and do what he was going to do anyway, okay? 
uh, come hell or high water, he was going to do it. My father was a community organizer in the South before the term was even, you know, in vogue. And he sought to register black subsistence farmers and sharecroppers to vote by going around these little villages and hamlets at night encouraging people to vote. Was he threatened? Because that's a brave man. White folk didn't know it. (laughs) Oh! No, they didn't know it. They did not know it. And so, you know, there was a very, you know, we protected each other. It's a very secretive kind of community. You know, the most most, um, powerful entities growing up in the South were the church, the funeral home, okay? Uh, church funeral home and the farmer who had his own land, especially if it was a, 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 a farmer who owned enough land to have sharecroppers of his own. Though, but the funeral director, so if you look at the history of the civil rights movement, the funeral director, study the funeral director, study okay. the black pastor. Yes. Irrespective yeah. of the denomination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were the ones who brought uh, consolation or... Um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I hear what you're saying, and I will do that study, sure. but, mm-hmm. but just sure. their position, their status sure. in the community, black or white. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the funeral director was untouchable, okay? Mm-hmm. More often than not, they lived in nicer homes. Yes. Right. Okay? Uh, they depended on, for their livelihood, the death of black folk. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't serve as white folk. It was black folk, okay? So they had, you know, income coming in. So if you look at Martin Luther King and the civil rights people, when they moved throughout the South, where did they stay? They stayed at the home of the black funeral director because they could not stay in many instances in motels. In all instances, they could not. So they stayed at the home of the white funeral director. They stayed at the homes of the black pastors. That's where they stayed. Okay, okay. Another thing, more reading, and I've got, I can't wait to to read some more later on. I read this, anything less than an A in compartment led mama treating us to an attitude adjustment. Now, my question to you is, I, I know about that attitude adjustment. I don't know if all of our listeners know. I would like for you to explain to our listeners what an attitude adjustment is and how do you feel about attitude adjustments today. But, but, but let me interject, and, and certainly attitude adjustment meant you would talk nice to little Johnny or Janie to say, now, is that what I you know, think? I know you're expressing <laughs> yourself, and, and all will be well. Uh, no, no, put that down, don't hit mommy, don't hit daddy. <laughs> And, and that was the attitude adjustment, right? Is that what the <laughs> No, the attitude adjustment no. was something totally different. I mean, we didn't talk back to our parents. We oh, had no. enormous respect for right, them, right. Uh, respect in its own right. But also, we knew that if we disrespected them or did anything that we should not be doing, mm-hmm. they would adjust that attitude. And that meant getting a switch out of a tree and tearing you up with it. And Mama would send you to get the switch herself. Okay. Yes. Now, today, my mother would probably be accused of, of child, uh, uh, child brutality or something, you know. Uh, uh, but, um, but that was, I mean, during that era in which I grew up, okay, spanking a child, paddling a child, we, you didn't go to the corner. Now, I'm not here to advocate that. I think right, that there are right. other ways to, to right. discipline a child rather mm-hmm. than having to whip them and so sure. on and so forth. And we certainly use those practices ourselves. That is not whipping, but other ways of disciplining a child. But, but my, my mother uh, perfected the art of child rearing. She had 11 children. She had to. Okay? Mm-hmm. So she had to. Otherwise, my mother would have been uh, really battle-scarred. She probably was. 
uh, trying to look after all of us and so on and so forth. But, uh, but that attitude adjustment meant that you were the recipient of a whipping, a corporal punishment, as they would call it, mm-hmm. okay? Um, uh, so I'm not here to say that we should do that today, but that was a practice in my day, and mm-hmm. it worked. Because out of my 11 of us, none of us ever went to jail, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, uh, We were never convicted of any, you know, crimes Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I credit that not just to the whippings of my mother, the attitude adjustment that she gave us, but the love that she gave us. Right. Right. You know, and my mother would, would adjust your attitude, but all the while she'd be talking to you. <laughs> so you understood what she was saying and why she was doing it. And she said, I'm doing this because I love you. Because if, if she didn't do that, then we ran the risk of being whipped, as I said in the book, with the Billy Jack, but the white sheriff uptown, mm-hmm. okay, or right. being shot, right. okay, right. or beaten or whatever. So, I mean, it was a real life or death kind of situation that our mother wanted to protect us from. You and know, and Charlie, there, you were just a little bit older than me, but you were in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Indianapolis mm-hmm. during the 50s and 60s. We got that same attitude adjustment and the same talking to sure. while you're getting your, mm-hmm. your attitude adjusted. Mm-hmm. And for the very same reasons, and I'm in inner city, sure. so that you can survive, so you will not end up in prison. Sure. And I have six brothers. I'm mm-hmm. the only girl. Mm-hmm. None of us went to jail. Yeah. We had to go to school. Sure. We were expected to sure. bring home good grades. Sure. There were no excuses no. for being rude to people, no, no excuses for being disrespectful. No. It just, we knew. Yeah. And we didn't have to get that attitude adjustment sure. and go out and get a switch often yeah. because we knew what was expected and we wanted to please our sure. parents. Absolutely. And I and that's, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. There's a wonderful book that I would encourage people to read, and it is The, uh, the Warmth of Other Sons, yeah. S-U-N-S, The Warmth of Other Sons by I- Isabel Wilkerson, Yes, where she, she does a wonderful job of tracing the black migration of people going from the South. Some came Midwest, some East Coast, West Coast, okay? Uh, but many of those practices that you are referring to in Indianapolis were practices that people, r- child-rearing practices, they, they brought from the South with them, mm-hmm. okay? And, um, um, and it served uh, the community of blacks effectively because it meant that we had fewer people, you know, in, in jail. Well, I'm going to take this moment now uh, while we're on this topic, and uh, since we're going to segue onto a more uh, robust topic, but I'm just going to take a pause for the cause of fundraising here at WFHB. I just want to say that um, it's pledge time at WFHB, and I want to encourage you to pick up your phone right now and dial 812-323-1200. Or go online at www.wfhb.org to provide your financial support for bringing on through a safe and secure pledge to WFHB. Your support's needed. Now's the time that you can make the phone call and uh, make your uh, make your decision, make your support known. 
And this is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news. Now back to our fascinating discussion with Dr. Nelms uh, on his book, From Cotton Fields to University Leadership, All Eyes on Charlie, a memoir, a story of how education was his weapon of choice for fighting racism and inequality. Now we're going to segue out from the woodshed right now. And I will say that uh, those attitude adjustment sessions didn't take a whole lot of those sessions. It probably just took a few, maybe a reminder here and there as you were growing up. But it was just the thought that you don't want a session. You want to progress and and behave. Uh, I want to, again, refer back to the preface of your book. And just one short, small paragraph that will springboard us into some more discussion. My mind was flooded with memories. Mama and Papa my teachers and mentors, and even the naysayers who were all responsible for me reaching this seminal milestone in my professional career. Having previously served as chancellor of two predominantly white universities, I knew firsthand what it was like to serve as a university president. But being inaugurated as CEO of a a historically black college and university, or HBCU for short, was another story. Now, uh, interesting, of course, you talk about your supporters, but you even included the naysayers, the one uh, that, that Liz had referenced earlier, Mr. Ed, was it? Yeah. Not the horse, but Mr. No, Ed, the plantation, the but the plantation owner, sure. um, who was a little miffed, more than a little upset sure. that, that you didn't choose to stay in, in this tranquil surrounding mm-hmm. rather than go off sure. and educate your mind. Can sure. you talk about some of those naysayers. You know, not all motivation is positive. I mean, there are negative forms of motivation as well. Some of them are destructive, but some of them are also productive. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, um, it, 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 it helped me to understand and appreciate that I was capable of doing more than working in the fields from sunup to sundown, enriching someone else, um, that, uh, that I could get out of there. And I had to have a weapon. I had to have a mechanism to do it. And, uh, and so my parents and my teachers at this little all-black, uh, all-Negro school had convinced us that education was the engine of opportunity. And so I bought into that whole hog, okay, as did many of my, uh, uh, my classmates, but especially my sisters and brothers. And, uh, and so we used Mr. Ed's attitude and the attitude of, Mr. Gabe Robinson Mm -hmm. and all of those other people there who certainly did not want to see you leave there, okay? And uh, so so it was uh, the naysayers, yes. And there were people who said to me, you know, you should, when I went off to graduate school, I won't call, not Indiana, but another school, Mm -hmm. and I was discouraged from even considering writing a dissertation or papers about historically black colleges because I was told and this was in 1971, 72, 73, I was told that these institutions are going to become increasingly irrelevant because now we have, quote, integration. Well, <laughs> we have integration, and it's 50 years later, and those institutions are just as relevant as yes, they, they were are. then. Yes. 
and in many instances more so. Yes. Uh, uh, but again, I believe in choice that people should go to college where they feel their needs can be best met. And, uh, and I know that HBCUs aren't the only institutions can, that can do that. But there is something about positive affirmations that you encounter every day in that environment that can, can, can situate you for future success and confidence and belief in yourself. Let's talk about the people that uh, uh, inspired you with those positive affirmations. Uh, and, and they're probably numerous, sure. numerous individuals, but who stands out? Two people. Well, two people. One would be my ag teacher, my agriculture teacher. So every every boy growing up in Arkansas and other parts of the South, we had to take agriculture. Mm. Okay, every girl had to take home economics. Okay, and boys and girls didn't enroll in those courses together. And so my ag teacher was not much older than me, and um, and he just had some rules and in terms of expectations that he had of you. And one, you do your best. Okay, he did not believe in corporal punishment. Okay, I mean he used psychological means, and you by the time he finished, you wish he had whipped you, you know. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, so my ag teacher would be 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 really probably the most important, and then I can't say one without the other, and it would be the prin- my principal and his wife. Okay, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Leroy McNeil. She was a home economics teacher, and he was a principal. And uh, they had confidence in us, they had pride in us, and they invested themselves in our success. And, and, and that's beyond my parents. Now I'm talking about people beyond my parents. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they never said to me I couldn't do a particular thing. They told me that I could when I thought I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And they stood there, they drove me back and forth for those public speaking contests you know, hog and cow and chicken ju- judging contests and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm, I'm forever grateful to those people. Um, many that know you have often remarked that you have the unique ability, fortitude and courage to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. These people help fashion and shape you and prepare you for that. And they ignited something within you to stand for truth. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share with anyone else who is maybe coming up in their career that is in a situation where they've lost their voice mm-hmm. to speak this truth to power out of yeah. fear of losing sure. a job? Or yeah. Yeah. can you share some just an example of yeah. what to do? Well, first of all, it's not what you say, but how you say what you say. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, if I wanted to stay alive, which I did growing up mm-hmm. and, and still now, I had to learn how to say what I needed to say without being injured, killed, or dismissed. And so you perfect the art of communication, okay? And so I try never to speak from a point of anger because why should I give anyone that kind of control over me, okay? So even if I'm angry, upset, you won't know it, okay? Um, uh, it, this whole notion of the two-ness, by the way, let me tell you where that whole term comes from, okay? So all eyes on Charlie, okay? That comes from a W.E.B. Du Bois kind of quote where he talks about the two worlds in which African Americans find themselves living and trying to navigate. You have these expectations from the black community and you have expectations from the white community. So you're straddling worlds, okay? And so it is in life whether it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or today, we find ourselves living and navigating multiple worlds. And so if we're going to be successful, we have to learn how to survive 
more than survive, we have to learn how to thrive. And the key to that, I believe, is the ability to communicate effectively with people that you agree with as well as those that you don't agree with, okay? And get your point across in such a way that you're left standing having pride and that you have not diminished another person in any other way. There's a, lots of ways to say go to hell without ever saying go to hell. Hello. Another first. <laughs> I'm bringing on. Have you put in your <laughs> bid for president yet? No, there are too many other people running. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Liz, I'll, I'll let you take a follow-up question. Well, well one thing I've always, always truly enjoyed, when I hear that Charlie Nams is speaking, I don't care where it is. Mm-hmm. I've got to be there. And then I always try to follow suit whenever I've got to talk, I think. I like I like how you put things, and I try to do that, Thank to you. make myself clear and to be understood. Sure. One other question uh, that I had of, um, of reading your memoir, you had mentioned the lack of a radio and television. Sure. Do you think that helped you by not having that? when you were growing up? In retrospect, in retrospect, I mean, you know, I wanted to watch the wrestling and I wanted to watch, you know, uh, 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 Hawaii Five-0, you know, yeah. Long Ranger. I wanted to watch those programs just like everybody else. But I think maybe one of the things that it really helped me with, and it probably nurtured our creativity because my siblings and I learned to, to, uh, to play all kinds of games, okay? Uh, we developed a deep appreciation for reading um, uh, and just for verbal skills. So in that sense, uh, I think that uh, we certainly weren't hurt by it, okay? Probably my mother and father would have turned the television off anyway. They would have limited the amount of television we could have access to. It would not be this unlimited access. Mm-hmm. But be that as it may, at the time, I did not think it was helpful. But today, I don't watch a lot of television. I still subscribe to newspapers that I can feel the, the print in my hands, Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't read nearly as much on my telephone or my iPad or my desktop as um, other, gener- other younger generations. So I still subscribe to three newspapers, you know, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and I like to fill the papers, you know. The New York Times, I'll be reading it until I get the next one on Sunday, you know. Yes. And uh, so, you know, s- s- suddenly, certainly, I think it probably nurtures some creativity mm-hmm. and, and better utilization of our time then had we had television and um, and radio, more of it sooner would have probably been a distraction. I guess we're just sure. old school, you and I. My sure. husband got me a Kindle. It's still on the box. Yeah, yeah. I want a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Kindle is helpful when you're traveling. You know, you can you don't have to worry with that paper. And I everything. still take a book. <laughs> well, I I wanted to uh, to delve now into your experiences. You know, you were chancellor at numerous universities and um, to me uh, attending your inauguration uh, at North Carolina Central University uh, sat there with pride as well as others uh, in our in our peer group you know this was a special thing we flew down uh, and it felt just as if it were a presidential inauguration like we were at 1600. Uh, West Pennsylvania, but we weren't. Uh, but it was nevertheless, it, it had all the pomp and circumstance. Uh, and and then I read in your book, this was the first day. And then I think the, fir- the second or third day, 
your something falls in your lap. You said every leader knows how to face challenges, and challenges are going to come. You know, they're not scheduled on your on your planner. But they just arrive and they set your day or your week. Mm-hmm. But you had a unique situation that plopped in your lap. I think on the second day. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you share that now? Or I know it's in the book, but yeah. but can you? Yeah. Uh, you took a deep sigh on that one because because you, you're you're well, reliving it. <laughs> you know, I, I was told that uh, there was a possibility that we would not be able to meet payroll. Wow. And and I was asked to uh, to come to a meeting to have a discussion about that. How many employees? Wow. Oh my goodness, probably six six seven hundred people. Yeah, and there was a chance that you would not be able make to meet payroll. payroll. Oh my! But 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 it turned out that we were able to make payroll, and the person providing that information, okay did not have all of the facts quite straight. We had to do some maneuvering <laughs> in order to be able to do that in terms of working with the uh, state budget officials and all of that kind of thing. But it, we, we worked through it. We worked through it. And we put in place, though, some um, uh, processes and procedures, mm-hmm. okay, that would enable us to do more effective planning and communications and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's that sort of steeled you for mm-hmm. uh, the days to come. I mean, your love, obviously, as you read through your book, is for historically black colleges and universities. Even now, you've devoted a major portion of your life in consulting with them on mm-hmm. how to uh, develop new leaders and how to, to overcome challenges. But I would say on the second day of the job, you know, now, now I get the, the, I understand what people say, well, oh, you showed up again. <laughs> <laughs> but after going through that and and uh, setting in in the place the safeguards so that that would not happen again. That was that was sort of your uh, your Solomon moment. Sure. Yeah. Well, certainly it was certainly a moment that allowed me to breathe a sigh of relief. That's right. <laughs> for sure. And um, uh, so I'm thankful for that, but also for the people with whom I had the privilege and the opportunity mm-hmm. to work. Because presidents and chancellors don't do very much on their own. You're dependent on a whole crew of other people. And uh, we certainly had a sh- our share of people who, whose hearts uh, and heads were in the right place and who had uh, an unyielding, unwavering commitment to, uh, to education. I would like uh, for you to, to tell our listening audience about your, the first school that you went to mm-hmm. and that it was a Rosenwald school. Sure. And most people today probably don't know what that sure. Rosenwald schools are. And here you started there, mm-hmm. and you ended up in these prestigious schools mm-hmm. as head of schools. So could you tell sure. our listening audience about the, what was it, the Smith? And Perkins. Smith and Perkins was the name of my little school. Yes. And But let me go back a little further okay. uh, than that, and that is Julius Rosenwald, who was the president and chief executive officer of Sears Roebuck and Company, okay? was concerned about the lack of uh, education for Negroes in in the South. And so um, he created the Rosenwald Foundation. And that foundation ended up building over 5,300 schools throughout the southern states of Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, and so on and so forth. So I attended one of those schools, and they were sprinkled around throughout uh, my county, Crittenden County. Smith and Perkins was the name of mine, and it was a two-room school. Uh, one room was so badly uh, dilapidated that we could not use it, big potbelly stove in the middle of the room and so on and so forth with a sole, single light bulb, suspended little desk and so on and so forth. But I attended one of those schools until I was fourth grade. 
and they closed those Smith and Perkins, those, uh, those Rosenwald schools, and they moved us to a consolidated colored school and uh, in Crawfordsville, and so we were bused to that particular school, but I had a single teacher. Her name was Miss Beatrice Johnson, and she had all children in pre primer or preschool through the sixth grade all children in pre-primer through the sixth grade. So if everyone attended school on any single day, she could have as many as 100 students, okay, a single teacher. Um, but I attended one of those schools, and we only attended school uh, five months out of the year because basically we chopped cotton in the spring and summer, and we picked cotton in the fall and we went to school in the winter. And so I never attended uh, a public school more than about four and a half to five months out of any given year. And that was all legal, okay? Now, you call it what you will or may, but that was apartheid, okay, and American style. And that's the system that I came through. But thank goodness, thanks, thanks be to God, you know, I had these people looking out for me, Mr. Moselle, Mr. and Mrs. Magnil, the pastor of my little church, the people at Arkansas a and in College, and, yes, Indiana University in the name of Jimmy Ross, Bob Schaefer, Betty Greenleaf, you know, um, uh, August Eberly, I had these wonderful people, you know, along the way who, was, who were placed in my path to make it possible for me to have a wonderful career. And so John Ryan, you know, had the courage to appoint me to a position at a time when there were only five African-American people at predominantly white universities as chancellor president. And John Ryan made that appointment. He had the courage to do that. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. And the people that I found in Richmond, Indiana, he didn't send me to Gary. He sent me to Richmond, Indiana, you know. And uh, so I'm just, I'm just, I'm grateful. I have a grateful heart for all of those opportunities that I had along the way. And that limited amount of time that you went to school, that was just for colored children. White kids went all year, right? Absolutely. They attended school all year. And at my little Smith and Perkins school, everything had been previously used by white children except the chalk. Everything but the chalk had been previously used by white children. We never had a new book. We never had a new school bus. We never had a new anything. And that's just the way it was. So why be angry about it? That's the way it was. What I need to do is to try to figure out a way to escape that. Yes. And then take some other people with me. Okay, as opposed to saying, oh, this is, it's that way. So what am I going to do about it? That's the most important thing. What are we going to do about it? And it's the same way today. What are we going to do about the circumstances we find ourselves involved in today? Mm -hmm. With about four minutes left, time flies. When Mm -hmm. we we get together, that just means we need to bring you back more. Um, There's a wonderful foreword by Walter M. Kimbrough uh, in your book. And each of the chapters has a unique title. Mm-hmm. which, of course, is further explained in, in each of the, uh, of the chapters. I want to go through the 11 and sort of an association sure. um, exercise in maybe a sentence, share mm-hmm. with the listeners some of the things that they might look to glean. Um, and, we, and we don't have time to go sure, fully. Sure, I, I won't, yeah. Um, the first one, I'll Fly Away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My mother's favorite song. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars is on, I'll fly away. In other words, I'll escape this place, mm-hmm. and I'm going to a better place. And so and, and, and so the slaves, you know, they sang those songs. That's right. Okay, and they were songs of hope, okay, and opportunity. They were trying to escape that place. 
And they weren't saying we're going to die. They said we're going to get out of this place, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was enslavement. And then the second chapter, How I Got Over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Mahalia Jackson sang that song. My, you know, she said, How I Got Over, How I Got Over. My soul looks back and wonder how I got over. Now, Mahalia Jackson never answers the questions about how she got over, but it's left, it's an implied response that it was through the grace of God that I was able to escape that situation. Tax and splinters. Oh, uh, mother to a child, Langston Hughes. And boy, don't you get tired, don't you sit down, because you find it kind of hard. Life for me ain't been no Christmas tale. You just got to keep on going. When the floor is bare, you know, splinters, whatever, you just keep on going. College bound. Oh, college bound. You know, uh, <laughs> that was when Mr. Moselle drove me down to Arkansas, Edmonton College, to get that job working for 75 cents per hour on the college farm on a Sunday, June 12, 1965. From Hand to bookstore clerk. Well, I started off uh, milking cows on the college farm for Mr. Holiday, and uh, I exhibited uh, the kind of work ethic my parents had trained us to, uh, to do. And uh, so the bookstore manager made notice of me, took notice of me and offered me a job making $1.25 working in the bookstore. Hot dog. You everything, big time. Everything before us. Yeah. And so uh, the book um, where it talks about, you know, uh, the uh, Gatsby. Uh, the Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Okay. So that's where that we had everything. We had, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we had hope. So we had everything we need, had hope. If you ever lose hope, we in real trouble. That's why we have to stay at the game and turn the television off. That's right. Yes. Boot camp. Oh, I was in the Marine Corps. And so I wanted to go to graduate school and I knew that I was going to end up in Vietnam had I been drafted. So I did what many of the white guys in my community in my county did. They went off and tried to join the National Guard. There were no spaces left in the National Guard, so I joined the U.S. Marine Corps Reserves. Went to boot camp. And of course, I had a degree and I was considered to be an uppity Negro. Ooh. And they sought to try to adjust my attitude. If I had a hammer. Oh, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening, I'd hammer all over the world, I'd hammer out the injustice and so on and so forth. We do have a hammer, and my hammer was education. Holding fast. Hold fast to dreams. That's what Langston Hughes said. Mm-hmm. That, But when dreams go, life is like a broken a winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go... Life is like a barren field frozen with snow. Hold fast to dreams. This spinning top. Oh, this spinning top is <laughs> getting out of control. So you got to, you know, you got to stay with it. You can't, it's like a roller coaster. You can't get off. You stay with it. And finally, full circle. Well, I had come full circle from the days of milking cows on the college farm for 75 cents per hour to being installed as the 10th uh, chief executive of North Carolina Central University. And by the way, it's the oldest public liberal arts institution in the country. And it has a um, unique connection to the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center. Yes, uh, that is correct. And I'm trying to Eagleson Hall. So there's a residence hall named after uh, the first uh, African-American woman, if I'm not mistaken, to graduate from Indiana University mm-hmm. and I had an opportunity to, to meet her family when I got there in 2007. And you have brought us to the end 
of this conversation, and thank you for sharing the essence and spirit of your book. Thank you. In less than three minutes. Now, will you please close out with my favorite, which is the poem on time and the value of time. Oh, you see, you caught me at a wrong time, and I can't remember. So I'm going to have to give you another poem. Okay. okay. All right. So I'm going to have to give you another poem. And it's, it's, it's more of a saying than a poem. And it's about Alan Bozak. And he says, uh, and, and Alan Bozak was a freedom fighter in South Africa, an Anglican minister. And he said, we will go before God to be judged. And God will ask, where are your wounds? And we will answer, we have no wounds. And God will ask, was there nothing worth fighting for? I submit to all of your listeners and to us here today that there's something worth fighting for, and it is a more equitable and just society for all people who look like us, who may not look like us, but people who deserve the opportunity to live holistic lives. And with that, that was the final word. We want to thank Dr. Charlie Nelms for coming on to talk about his book, From Cotton Fields to University Leadership, All Eyes on Charlie, a memoir, a story of how education was his weapon of choice for fighting racism and inequality. And sir, we will have you back on again. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Charles. Stones in my path, but I kept on walking. But I kept on walking. I kept on walking. Stone raining wrath, but I kept on walking. It's Clarence once again. It's pledge time at WFHB, and I just want to encourage you to pick up the phone and dial 812-323-1200 or go online at www.wfhb.org to provide your financial support for bringing on through a safe and secure pledge to WFHB. And uh, we were just so honored to have Dr. Nelms here, and he so honored us with a donation of uh, $60 to WFHB. Uh, because he believes in what we're doing, and we just want to thank him publicly for that. Um, and I'm going to make a pledge of $25, and right, I would like to right. make a challenge to anyone out there listening to match my pledge of $25. Please do that, and and that will help increase. So please match my pledge of $25, anyone out there listening. Now uh, let's turn our attention to Brian Turner. 
president of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus, who will talk about a candidate's forum that will be held this coming Sunday. Brian, welcome to Bring It On. It's good to see you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, um, Mr. Byron Turner, uh, we thank you also for coming to join us. And you're no, you're no stranger to politics. Uh, can you share with us some of the, the uh, journeys you've taken? Uh, of course. Uh, so I started in, uh, in college. I went to McKinsey University, and while I was there, I, I had the opportunity to act as a student lobbyist, um, trying to um, secure um, secure. Um, scholarship funding um, in the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I got a little experience about at the age of 18, 19, um, speaking to lawmakers and um, really getting a firsthand experience at the process. Okay. Uh, I, I was originally an education major and I loved the process so much as well as some of the things I was studying in my intro to political science class that I switched my major to okay. political science. and. It kind of took me from there, um, and I moved to Bloomington. I moved away from Bloomington, and when I moved back, I knew I wanted to be involved. So one of the things I did as I got established again was um, was applied to the Commission on the Status of Black Males, mm -hmm. and I was appointed in 2017. So kind of from there, I, I, I learned from um, the gentleman on the commission uh, gained everything I could from them, and in 2018, I ran for school board. Uh, from there, I was elected uh, president of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus in 2019, reappointed as uh, commissioner on the status of black males, where I currently serve as uh, vice chair. All right, sir. Well, thank you from one poli-sci major to another. Mm -hmm. Congrats to you. Um, we are so glad to have you on out. Now, there is an event coming up. Uh, a series of forums uh, for candidates that are running for various offices and in the city of Bloomington. Now, the first forum, as I understand, will be on Saturday, April 13th, which is this Saturday for the mayoral mm -hmm. and the city council at large position, the city clerk and city council district five races. The second forum is the next day, April mm -hmm. 14th, a Sunday. And, and those that will be on the forum will be city council districts, representatives from the first district, second district, fourth, and sixth district. Did I get that right? Um, it is right. There might be just uh, one or two switches. Okay. But um, okay. That's, that's, pretty much, mm -hmm. that's pretty much it. And both events are intended to last two hours and are scheduled from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, Sunday, um, the, well, the one on Saturday and Sunday will be at the Lighthouse Community Fellowship Church. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Lighthouse, I should know this. I, I only attend that church. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, I'm only assistant pastor at that church. I should, I should uh, the Lighthouse Community Church, Fellowship Hall, 850 East Winslow Road, Bloomington. Uh, so, yeah, come on out to our uh, humble abode and uh, enjoy these two forms um, on a weekend. So what are we doing on the weekend anyway? So let's come on out and engage with our candidates. Okay, so tell us, how, how is this going to come together? What, what's going to happen? Yes, so um, you'll be welcome to the Lighthouse. Um, right. There'll be a, a, a reception mm -hmm. um, catered by uh, BJ's Restaurant from here in town. Okay. Um, we'll, have, we'll start out with a introduction um, about the forum, um, a, a introduction about um, the 
Bloomington Black Strategic Alliance, mm-hmm. who is co-hosting this with the, um, the caucus. Um, then we'll go into uh, candidate introduction, introductions, uh, three minutes for each. Um, following that, um, each competitive race will have a set amount of time for questions by um, our moderators, who will be students, uh, high school or college. Hmm. Um, and then, um, so each, each, each competitive race gets, um, gets their own set of questions. And then we kind of will wrap up with a little um, community conversation. The candidates come out and meet the people there, um, take more private questions, what have you. So as I envision this, say I'm running for a particular position, mm-hmm. uh, it will be me and my challenger or challengers that will be there. And yes. there will be strict guidelines as far as rules of engagement, yes. not rules of warfare, but <laughs> rules of engagement. And uh, will there be set issues that will be discussed or will the issues come solely from the floor? Um, so we'll have, um, it'll kind of be a hybrid. Um, so we'll have a set of questions mm-hmm. um, that are is currently being worked on. And then um, we'll also have, we'll be able to take questions from the floor as well. So there'll be a little time for both. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, that, that was the one question I was going to ask if the general uh, public that attend could ask questions. Is I'm glad that high school students and yeah. college students are invited to participate in that and get get them started. So, um, again, um, questions from the floor, and there will be a limited amount of time for each mm-hmm. one of these people. Yes. So if you have questions, it would be good to, to have them in, in hand mm-hmm. uh, beforehand. Correct. So that uh, they'll be able to answer. I think this is an excellent opportunity for the public to attend and we have to get engaged uh, so we could change things. Yes, very much so. Um, that is the that is that is the idea behind this. Is it's just per, using the caucuses, the uh, Bloomington Black Strategic Alliances, using our resources to ensure that the that our community uh, has the opportunity to engage um, with our candidates. It makes us um, a better community makes us more engaged citizens and makes our candidates better um, and thus our governing uh, bodies better so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you know the, uh, and the one thing that we probably haven't talked about which we ought to just bring out in the open is maybe we'll hear from them as far as how they will choose to or use that position to empower those folks in the black community uh, this is the black mm-hmm. caucus that's calling us what are you going to do for us? What are you going? To, how are you going to help empower us? Not so much what are you going to do for us, but how are you going to empower us so that we can do for ourselves? And uh, not so much uh, a lot of politic, uh, political promises, uh, but but some real common sense. And we see that playing out now at the, at the presidential level, where you know this is in Iowa, but nevertheless people are flocking to Iowa, flocking all over the place to. To get their face recognized, to as they say, squeeze the flesh, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's kind of easy now because you're just reading from a script as far as what you'll do, or you're getting passionate on cue and trying to set yourself apart from any contenders. But uh, I, I encourage the candidates that show up to come ready to answer uh, relevant, salient questions as far as how can I help the black community. I know some issues. 
And maybe you can uh, identify for us, Byron, what are some of those key That's issues what's my next that, question. Gonna, that should be talked about? Yes. Um, so I always have to start with this one because it's the subject I'm most passionate about. It's always education, mm -hmm. um, the disproportionate discipline rates um, in um, our schools here at MCCSC. Um, that's being worked on by a number of groups currently, um, but that is still a question um, for our, our potential political leaders. Mm -hmm. um, I think as I think housing is always a big issue in our county, um, and that applies um, even more so to, um, to black and brown people here. Okay. Um, our homeowner rates are um, extremely low. Our renting rate is extremely high, and our usage of public housing um, is incredibly disproportionate. Um, so what ways will they address those issues to empower those people to become homeowners, um, to have the uh, financial stability to um, move from public housing into private housing if they choose? Mm -hmm. So um, let's see, always, um, Another big issue is always um, jobs, um, ensuring that um, our citizens uh, have uh, the resources um, to empower themselves to, um, to go out and get uh, working class and, um, and better than working class jobs. And if they're unable to, what programs, what do we need to do? Or what do these candidates need to be proposing um, for people to empower themselves. Uh, one other question is, and you didn't mention um, incarceration. Is mm -hmm. that a problem here? Is that disproportionate? So, yes, it is a problem. Um, so with incarceration rates, um, African Americans are uh, disproportionately um, picked up for um, more minor offenses um, than any um, other um, group of people. Um, while there is, um, there, while there's been um, a good amount of progress, um, especially in our um, our times, but our our times between between um, being incarcerated and then being released, um, there is still a still a disproportionate. Um, response by the police in, in um, arresting African-Americans. Um, and I think we need to continue to look at why that is and what we need to do about it. And I think the candidates need to be prepared for um, what they would do um, on that subject. Okay. One, one thing I like is, as you said, with uh, jobs, uh, you know, the working class, uh, entry-level professional positions, Bloomington is a desirable place for a lot of people that uh, mm -hmm. migrate here. Yes. And uh, people flock here in droves, buy nice homes, and get good jobs, a great mm -hmm. school system to attend. So you, you hit on a, a lot of the relevant points. Uh, and then, of course, embedded in all that, of course, is access to health care. Um, mm -hmm. uh, just making sure that from an early age, our children learn about uh, taking better care of themselves. Now, some may say, well, that's not a politician's job, but hey, they're in positions of authority. That's right. And uh, there can be um, some help given to those entities that try to educate our youth. And, and Liz has worked so extensively in so many different causes in the Bloomington community. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and I just feel that the one of the best things about Bloomington is, is that if you have an idea 
that you want to launch. Uh, I don't think there's, I'll say this, there's, I don't think there's anywhere else in the state yes. that you can take an idea. And if you have the, uh, the gumption and the boldness and the vision to launch it, uh, what a better place, what a better place to, to say, you know, have this thought as in an incubator that you can hatch and just see uh, take off. But, uh, yeah, we need to challenge our um, politicians. Now, we have about a minute left. I'll let you have the final word on those things we may not have touched on that are relevant, that our listening audience needs to know about this coming Saturday and Sunday. Um, so relevant for this coming Saturday and Sunday. Um, I think I just, uh, I'd just like to l- make sure it's known that um, candidate forums, um, campaign events, uh, fundraising or non-fundraising, these are the times for citizens to get engaged, to talk to their potential representatives, to, um, to understand what's happening in our community and to let their voices be heard. It's just, it's incredibly important that people attend these type of events. Um, this is where it matters. This is where we make um, our future leaders um, and guide them and educate them on what we need. I appreciate you uh, coming on here, uh, Mr. Turner. Our thanks to Byron Turner, president of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus, and also to Dr. Charlie Nelms, transformational servant leader, motivational speaker, and author for coming on to be with us this evening. And again, our thanks to all those who uh, donated during the the progress of this show. Still not too late, 812-323-1200 or safely and securely on the web at www.wfhb.org. And thank you for that challenge, uh, gift, Liz. I will take you up on that and I will double my gift to WFHB and for Dr. Nelms also. All righty. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, to our listening audience. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. With help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chanel LaFonte. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. Thanks for your donations to WFHB and to bring it on. Tune in next week on Monday, April 15th at 6 o'clock p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here at your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.